Numbers chapter 11 today. Pentecostal preacher is holding a special meeting, special series, special meetings at a church. Um, he was um, traveling, did a lot of speaking. As he spoke, I'm sure there are a lot of amens and preach it brothers, praise the Lords and hallelujahs. This is a Pentecostal church. At the end of the service, he said, I'd like to pray especially for any of you who is discouraged. So if you're going through discouragement, I invite you to stand and I'll pray for you. So it's a Pentecostal church where everybody's shouting, glory, hallelujah. And guess what? Eight out of ten people stood up. Eight out of ten people in that church were discouraged. In spite of their hallelujahs, they were worn out, ready to hang it up, and feeling hopeless. If at the end of this service, I invited everyone here who is discouraged to stand up and receive prayer, and if everybody was absolutely honest, I wonder how many of us would stand. 80%? I don't know. But experience tells me it wouldn't be a small number. There have been many times I would have stood in response to that kind of an invitation. In fact, had I been sitting out there a couple weeks ago and such an invitation had been made, I would have stood up. After Palm Sunday, I lost my voice and struggling with this for 15 years now. And I went to the doctor so that I could get it back before Easter, and he gave me an antibiotic and a prescription for prednisone, steroid. And I was pretty pleased at that because I had had a prescription for for prednisone or some other steroid years ago, and I thought it was a wonder drug. Man, it did wonders. Years ago, I hadn't had any side effects. This time I did. I didn't sleep for more than an hour or two for eight nights. And so at three in the morning each night, I am up working. And I'm thinking, this isn't too bad. I'm not tired. I'm getting a lot done. It's just in time for Easter. But not sleeping began to catch up with me. And the combination of that and prolonged disappointment about some outstanding issues left me feeling really discouraged. But here's what I know. God is not the source of discouragement. Not for his people, anyway. God is the source of courage, resolve, direction, hope, God knows his people will face hardships, conflicts, disappointments, frustrations, disagreements. He knows that they'll make bad choices, that they'll send their way into trouble. He knows they're going to suffer the loss of people and things that are incredibly important to them. But knowing all of that, God does not want his people to live under the added burden, the intolerable burden of discouragement. Numbers 11 tells the story of a good man, a great man, who grew discouraged. I want us to see how it happened to him, and then I want us to see what we can do when it happens to us. I've asked the Lord to speak to us personally this morning, to give us steps that we can take after we leave this place. That good and great man of Numbers 11 is one of the principal heroes of the Bible. If there was a dream team of Bible heroes, he'd be on it. In fact, he'd be on the starting lineup. His name is Moses. He's known as the lawgiver, the deliverer. His impact on Jewish people and on the nation of Israel is unparalleled. But in Numbers 11, Moses is ready to give up. 
He's tired. He's frustrated. He says, and this is how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, he says, it's too much for me. It's too much for me. You ever feel that way? You feeling that way this morning? Let me read from our text. We'll look beyond this in both directions, but I want to read verses 10 through 17. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes and don't let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit that's on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Okay, so here's the backstory. Israel was a distinct ethnic group living in Egypt for hundreds of years, almost twice as long as our country has been a nation. So get that picture. Hundreds of years, 400 years. During that time, the Israelite population multiplied tremendously, and the Egyptians came to see them as a threat to their society. They were mistreated, officially mistreated, abused, even enslaved. Into that setting, God sent Moses, and he led the entire people out of Egypt. But not only did the Israelites leave Egypt, a significant number of other ethnic peoples, and perhaps even some disaffected Egyptians, went with them. By the time our story takes place, the Hebrew people are on their way to Canaan, the land of their forefathers. They have received a remarkable book of law to govern their new society. Though they're a vast people and are traveling through wilderness areas, they have a staple food. It's called manna, which they pick up off the ground every morning. But the people were getting tired of eating manna. Some of them, those disaffected Egyptians and other ethnic peoples, begin to complain about the food and then about the leadership and about everything. And as so often is the case, their complaining spirit was contagious. It was the rabble with them that started the grumbling, but it wasn't long before the Israelites were infected with it. Verse 4 says the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing, if only we had meat to eat. That's already happened. It's happening again. Now, do you realize that when people complain, when we complain, when we complain, we always engage in comparing our situation to some other situation, real or imagined. So we compare our financial condition, for example, to our neighbors who's always driving a new car, 
or we compare our present with our past or our future with someone else's future. Of course, we really, really don't know what our neighbor's financial condition is. And the past that we remember is usually only half history. The rest is fiction. And when we look ahead to our possible future, it's almost all fiction. Complaining runs on the fuel of comparisons. And they're usually false comparisons. We see that with the Israelites. They compare their present to their past, and their past now takes on a rosy glow. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic at no cost. As if slavery wasn't costly. They forgot the abuse and the injustice that they suffered and the result of their comparing and their complaining was that each family stood at the entrance to their tent, this is verse 10, and wailed. Everything's terrible. That made the Lord angry. He hates grumbling. This is not the only place you see that. God hates grumbling. And it made Moses anxious. Trouble's the word the NIV uses. Even Moses, who's later described in the Bible as more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, even Moses is fed up. He says to the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? I love the next line, but it ought to be read in a fiddler on the roof, Yiddish, Tevi dialect. Did I conceive all of these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? You know, some interpreters read that, and they insist Moses is not being sarcastic. I mean, how could a godly man like Moses ever be sarcastic? They say he's, he's reminding God of his own sovereign choice in selecting Israel. Yeah, right. This is discouragement, speaking the language of frustration. Listen to what he says next. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, now, I don't see how those interpreters say he's not speaking out of discouragement. If this is going to, how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. I don't want to live. That's discouragement. Deep, persistent discouragement. You can be sure that Moses didn't get into this place all in one day. This has been growing in him. These words have come into his thoughts many times before they came out of his mouth. The most humble man on the face of the earth is sick and tired of being everyone else's whipping boy. Now, God, he knows what Moses is feeling and thinking. And he knows what Moses needs. Just like he knows what you're feeling and thinking and knows what you need. And so he says to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders people who are known to you as leaders and officials, have them come to the tent of meeting, that they can stand with you. And then he says, they'll help you carry the burden of this people so that you don't have to carry it alone. 
but he's not done. God's not done. He says, the people want meat to eat? I'll give them meat to eat. I'll give them meat in the wilderness, all the meat they could ever want. And you know what Moses says? Essentially, I don't believe you. You can't do that. He actually argues with God about it. Read the rest of the chapter. And see, that's one of the most disturbing and damaging effects of discouragement. It robs us of our ability to believe God. We can't take him at his word. When we're discouraged, our immediate problems are bigger than God is. Here's my problem. Giant looming up before me, blocking out the sun, filling all of my vision. And here's God. Far away, hard to see, hidden behind my problem. Complaints fill my ears, and they drown out God's voice. But God, who understands how discouragement works and knows what Moses needs, says to him, Okay, you just watch and see whether or not what I say comes true. So let me pause here for just a moment so we can think about our situation. And we're going to get really practical about this on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, we talk about the sermon, about the sermon text, and about how it applies to our lives right out here in the lobby. So if you'd like to join us, that's at 7 o'clock. If you're discouraged today, your problems look big, and your God looks small. When a friend or a spouse or a preacher tells you what God says, You can't hear it. Your ears are filled with the swelling refrain of your problems. If if I could listen in on your prayers, if you pray at all, because it's odd, our problems often stop us praying, but if you pray at all, it would sound just like you were complaining to God. All that's missing is that Yiddish lilt. There's no thanksgiving. There's no praise. Of course there's not. Why would you praise that little God who's smaller than your problems? Why would you thank that distant God who doesn't care about what you're going through? But here's what you and I have to get a hold of. Discouragement makes a person see things that aren't there and miss things that are there. God hasn't changed. His arm is not too short to reach you. You're the one that's changed, not him. Discouragement has distorted your vision. It's deafened your ears to his voice. You're not just discouraged about your problem. Discouragement is your problem. And it's a problem that God wants to deal with. Remember the story that Jesus told about the wheat and the tares? The tares are a a foreign and worthless weed that an enemy plants in a farmer's field to make it almost impossible to harvest his crop. Discouragement is like that foreign and worthless weed. The enemy of our souls plants it, a little seed in our minds, and fertilizes it with comparisons and waters it with complaints, and then he sits back and watches it grow, knowing it can ruin us for God's plans and purposes. 
If you're discouraged, you think your problem is, and you can fill in the blank, your job, your spouse, your child, finances, friends, health, you know whatever that stubborn problem is, and you think that if only that would change, everything would be fine. But you have another problem, a pressing problem, discouragement. Discouragement is not just the result of your problem. It is your problem. You need and you can have God's grace to help with discouragement. Now, go back and think about Moses. How did he get in this place? He was surrounded by chronically dissatisfied, unhappy people, by grumblers. God absolutely hates grumbling. Hates it. You say, but Moses grumbled. Well, yes, but Moses grumbled to God. They grumbled to each other. There's a world of difference. If you're surrounded by grumbling, by chronically dissatisfied people, you may have to remove yourself from them. At the very least, you'll have to inoculate yourself from their disease. We'll talk about how to do that in just a moment. Another thing that made Moses' discouragement worse, he took responsibility for solving a problem that was not his problem. And we learn elsewhere that he did this regularly. He made it his job to make people happy, or at least to keep them from being unhappy, as if that were ever going to be under his control. If you make yourself responsible for other people's feelings, and certain types of personalities are very prone to this, then discouragement is going to be your constant companion through life. It's particularly a problem in the ministry. The great John Stott said, discouragement is the bane of the ministry. Somebody as great as Charles Spurgeon was sometimes so depressed he couldn't get out of bed for days on end. Another thing, Moses was isolated. He was isolated from friends and peers. They say it's lonely at the top, but the truth is it can be lonely anywhere. Moses got into the habit of thinking of himself as alone, of being alone, all alone. Do you notice what he said? I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. Did God ask him to carry all those people by himself? Of course not. There are people all around Moses who could have helped, who would have helped. But Moses hadn't asked them. His father-in-law had told him, you've got to do this, Moses. You've got to do this. You're killing yourself. Did Moses not have God with him? Of course he did. But instead of reaching out to God or to others, Moses retreated into himself. And of all places, that is the loneliest place on earth. Let me give you one more thing that, about how Moses got into discouragement. And then we'll look at what we can do to get out of it. <clears throat> Moses had come to look at God through the lens of his circumstances. He looked at God through his circumstances. When you do that, as Moses did, it will distort your view of God. He'll get smaller and smaller and kind of weak and flabby. 
But when you look at your circumstances through God, instead of the other way around, just the opposite happens. Your circumstances shrink down to size. So what do we need to do to deal with discouragement? Well, first of all, inoculate yourself against the contagion of complaining. It is so contagious. How do you do that? You do it by thanksgiving and praise. You intentionally, and if it's not intentional at first, it's not going to happen. You intentionally thank God and praise him. You rehearse his character qualities. You tell him what you admire about him. God, I admire this so much about you. You thank him for the things he's made, the people you love, the life he's given you. You know what? When you get good at this, you'll even be able to thank him for your troubles because you will know that your troubles form the groundwork for his action. So you praise and you thank God. And you're very intentional about doing that. What else do you need to deal with discouragement? You need a fresh encounter with God himself. You need to hear him speak to you. Where do you get a fresh encounter with God? Where is it that you hear him speak? The most reliable places in the Bible. Read it to hear from God. Read it for relationship. That scripture engagement seminar on May 16th will help tremendously with this. Listen to Teachers who love God and love the Bible, and God will speak to you. When Moses was discouraged, he went to the Lord. He talked to him. He complained to him. Yeah. But he also heard from him. See, when God speaks, things change. When he speaks, we change. And he still speaks. Are we listening? Here's the third thing. If we want to get past our discouragement, we need other people in our lives. God gave us each other. St. Paul goes so far as to say we belong to each other, that we are members one of another. Connect with other people. Christianity is communal. John Wesley was right. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. St. Peter says this, the devil goes about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour by discouragement, if nothing else. And guess who he'll find to devour? The person who is isolated from fellow Christians. The person is trying to go it alone. We live the Christ follower's life in community. It has been that way since the very beginning, since Jesus called 12 men to be with him and to work alongside him. Even Jesus lived the Christian life in community. Here's a fourth thing. If we want to get God's grace so that we can prevail over discouragement, we have to get realistic about life. As long as you're in this world, you will have trouble. Sorry. If the only way you will ever be encouraged is to have all your troubles removed, you'll never be encouraged. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't mince any words. If you're looking for a job where you won't have any troubles, you're going to be chronically unemployed. If you're looking for a church where you won't have any troubles, I know it won't be this one. 
And I seriously doubt it'll be any other one. If you're looking for a God who will remove every trouble from your life, you're not going to find one. If you think you've found one, it's because you've entered the world of idolatry. As soon as Moses got over this trouble, he got into a different trouble. We need to be realistic about it. God does not promise a trouble-free life or anything like it. In fact, quite the opposite. But he does promise to be with us in trouble and to deliver us. See, God knows that you can be in trouble without trouble being in you. But that can only happen if God is in you, filling you with his spirit. You can't be filled with God's spirit and filled with the spirit of discouragement at the same time. Here's another thing. If you're going to beat discouragement, you're going to have to be employed in the work God has given you to do. Paul says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Spiritual fervor evaporates when we stop serving the Lord. And guess what takes its place? Discouragement. You need to be about your father's business. Moses got back to work after Numbers 11. When the great prophet Elijah was deeply discouraged, so deeply that he wanted to die, God tended to his mind and body and then gave him a threefold work assignment. He gave him work to do. After Peter's disgrace and denying Jesus, the Lord commissioned him for the work of tending his sheep, of caring for his church. If you're not doing anything in the service of the Lord, then I shouldn't wonder that you're discouraged. And you shouldn't wonder either. One last thing. Overcoming discouragement will require you to trust your heavenly Father. Always seems to come back to that, doesn't it? When hardships are combined with faith, those hardships produce miracles. But when hardships are combined with unbelief, they produce grumbling and complaining and discouragement. Listen, you can't wait to trust God until all your problems are gone. You have to do it now. You have to do it before anything has changed. Don't decide whether or not to trust God based on the weight of the cross you bear, but on the weight of the cross his son bore. If you want to know whether God is trustworthy, all you have to do is look at the cross. It says that he will do for you whatever it is takes. The cross says, as nothing else could ever say, in this world, you will have trouble. The empty tomb finishes the sentence, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. All right, let's pray. And I'm going to pray especially for you who are discouraged today. Father, this is a burden. It's a burden that we've all borne at times. Lord, we know we're weighed down. We don't even realize that the enemy of our souls has something to do with it. We think it's all about our problems. Our vision is distorted. We need your help, and I pray, Lord, that you will grant it. Grant it 
to all of us today who are struggling through discouragement. Help us to take the steps that are necessary to escape this, to cast it off, to get your mind on things. Lord, help us to take that first step of trusting you right now. Not just with our problems out there, but the ones in here with our discouragement. And I ask you to do this in powerful ways that will change lives for Jesus' sake. Amen.